This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week's topic is a very difficult and in many ways disheartening topic, but a topic that all scholars and citizens who care about democracy need to focus upon these days. Uh, This is the question of voter intimidation. It's an old story in American history, but it's a story that many of us believed was in the past, uh, the past of the 19th and early 20th century when bullies tried to prevent people from certain backgrounds from voting or certain races from voting or bullied people to vote in particular ways. What we've seen in recent years and particularly in recent months is an increase in voter intimidation, efforts by particular groups to stop people from voting, to stop them from campaigning. And we have with us today two very prominent, experienced, thoughtful politicians and political analysts who have experienced this and also analyzed it for us and have a lot to share with us about what we can do to limit and push back against voter intimidation in our society. We're very fortunate to be joined by Wendy Davis and Eric Servini. Wendy Davis represented the 10th district proudly in the Texas Senate from 2009 to 2015. She was previously on the Fort Worth City Council. She also ran for governor of the state of Texas and recently ran for Congress as well. She was serving as a surrogate for the Biden-Harris campaign and was present on the Biden-Harris campaign bus when a group of Trump supporters, a large group calling themselves the Trump train, harassed the bus on October 30th, 2020, forcing a number of campaign events to be canceled. We will discuss this incident with her and with Eric. Eric Servini is a PhD and an award-winning historian of LGBTQ plus politics and culture. I highly recommend his recent book, The Deviance War, which was deservedly a New York Times bestseller and an editor's choice from the New York Times, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in history. It won a number of awards, including the Randy Schiltz Award for Gay Nonfiction and was awarded the best read of 2020 at the uh, Queerties. Uh, He's an authority, Eric is, on gay activism from the 1960s to the present. He's on the board of directors of the Harvard Gender and Sexuality Caucus and on the board of advisors for the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C. He was also part of the incident on October 30th. Uh, Eric was involved in the Biden-Harris campaign at that moment and experienced the intimidation that we'll discuss in this podcast today. So, uh, Wendy, Eric, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Before we turn to uh, our discussion with Wendy and Eric, we have, of course, our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? I Knew We Had Arrived. Let's hear it. I knew we had arrived when we all whispered the news from the man who heard it from the grapevine that the end was coming. I knew we had arrived when the buses all became dominoes and we all faced down the guardians of Lafayette Square, asking what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding. It was like the apocalypse was on its way, but it was stuck in a traffic jam of Satanists on I-35 between San Marcos and the Second Coming. 
I knew we had arrived when I spotted a bullet hole in the shape of America, and no one seemed to care about the arc of the moral universe that's long but bends towards justice, because no one seemed to realize this wasn't justice. And it was like jumping through fire to buy a lighter, like kissing a Komodo dragon on the lips, like a florist in an empty shop, where have all the flowers gone? And I knew we had arrived because it all went in slow motion, and I watched them fake religion, fake decency, fake up a new constitution with tea stains and candle smoke, make the new lies look like the old truths, because the times, they are a-changing. Zachary, I love uh, all the combinations of uh, historical and musical references in your poem. What is your poem about? My poem is really speaks seeks to speak to the direness of the threat that political violence and the militarization of our political discourse poses not just to our democracy, but to our society and also to our relationships as human beings. Well, I think that's a, a perfect place to start. Uh, Wendy, if we, if we could start with you, could, could you share with us the experience on October 30th and, and why it stands out to you? You and Erica pardon of, of a lawsuit uh, surrounding these events. Uh, you're such an experienced, distinguished politician. Why were these events on October 30th so startling and, and what happened? Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for having me. And Zachary, thank you for that phenomenal, beautiful poem. I'd love to have a copy of it. And I'm really happy to be here and proud to be here with Eric Cervini today. Um, as you pointed out, Jeremy, I've been in politics for a long time. I started my first political campaign back in 1996, and I've run just about every election cycle since then. And though I have been a person in the middle of some controversial issues, and certainly I've had my fair share of people acting out in ugly ways, I've never experienced anything like I experienced that day, October 30th, which was our last day of early vote here in Texas in 2020. Um, as I experienced that day, we had made several stops on the bus. They were supposed to be um, announced stops uh, where people would know ahead of time where we were going to be so that we could gin up some excitement about the election, the opportunity um, to elect Joe Biden as our next president, and to really encourage people to come out for the early vote. Um, but unfortunately, I believe it was the day prior, the, the folks who were volunteering and staffing the Biden campaign had run into some harassment in the Laredo area. And a decision was made not to pre-announce where we were going to be, which sort of defeats the purpose of the entire thing, you know, to encourage people to exercise their constitutional right to vote and their First Amendment right to express themselves um, and their excitement about the upcoming election. But we did make a couple of stops. Um, we said thank you to the campaign workers and the voters who happened to be there. And the third stop that we made was at a, a prominent arena in the San Antonio area. And I suppose the Trump folks guessed that that's a likely place that we would be. It was a very large early voting center in San Antonio. And sure enough, when we arrived there, there were several people with Trump paraphernalia on pickup trucks awaiting us. 
And while we tried to make remarks to the few people who had gathered there, we weren't able to because they were shouting us down. So we got on the bus um, headed towards San Marcos, which is about an hour away from San Antonio. And our plan was to go to Texas State University. We had a number of students who had organized a, a wonderful rally. Um, and they were really excited about this. For many of them, it was their first time to participate in a political event and a political election. Um, and unfortunately, as we left San Antonio, the folks who followed us from that arena um, apparently communicated ahead. And before long, we were surrounded by mostly pickup trucks um, bearing Trump paraphernalia with people acting in very intimidating and, and honestly frightening ways, um, becoming coming very, very close to the bus, um, veering and swerving as though they were trying to maneuver us off of the roadway. As we continued down the I-35 corridor, there were people basically lying in wait um, on the grassy sides of the highway, and they would join the, the caravan of trucks that were surrounding us. Um, and we were lucky that for a little while, um, we did have a police escort join us in New Braunfels. We had called 911. Um, we were immediately supported by the police there. And when that happened, the the caravan, um, the Trump train, began behaving in more normally. Um, they had previously slowed our speed to about 20 to 30 miles an hour. Um, they began driving at a regular speed. They moved away from the bus. But then as soon as we hit San Marcos and we lost our New Braunfels police escort, even though I and Eric and others um, had called 911 and asked for help, unfortunately, we didn't receive it. And it was really frightening. Um, we wound up making a judgment call to cancel the stop at Texas State University because we were really worried about taking this entire caravan of Trump train uh, vehicles to that college campus with us. And honestly, we're very fearful for the safety of the students there. It sounds absolutely horrible, nightmarish. And, and I remember watching the, the video that evening on, on the news. Uh, Eric, can you share your experiences with us as well? Sure. First of all, thanks so much for, for having me. And it's it's such an honor to be a plaintiff alongside Senator Davis, who, you know, part of the reason I was volunteering that day is because folks like her have, have showed that even just one person can can make history. Uh, and it, it felt so important to be there uh, trying to turn Texas blue and have, you know, civil liberties for, for everyone uh, in our state. And so I was just there for that day. It was my first day volunteering. Uh, uh, alongside the, the Biden-Harris bus. And I was driving a little bit ahead, about five minutes ahead. Uh, and it, the plan was for me to help with advance, help set up some of the events uh, for some of the surrogates and some of the local candidates uh, in, in between San Antonio and Austin. And so I got to see the, uh, the, the ambush and wait. So the, there was about 40 to 50 cars and pickup trucks waiting alongside I-35. Uh, and of course, uh, impeding traffic, uh, certainly dangerous conditions even before 
the bus got there. And so I gave them a bit of a warning, uh, but by then it was it was too late. And so by the time I got to the San Marcos venue where the campaign event was to be held, uh, the, the bus had already been surrounded. I was getting calls from inside the bus from staffers and other volunteers, uh, folks who feared for their lives. Uh, and so it was it was quite a terrifying experience, uh, let alone for someone who was actually on the bus uh, or even driving the bus. Uh, and so thankfully, there were a couple or I would have hoped, thankfully, there were a couple of, uh, of law enforcement officers at the event venue. And I ran up to them and told them that something terrible was happening, that folks were fearing for their lives. People were in danger on I-35. I told them exactly where the bus was and they didn't do anything for 20 minutes. Uh, they said if they felt in danger that they could call 911. And they refused to go to I-35 with the explanation that by the time they got there, they likely, the bus that is, would likely have been outside of their jurisdiction. So it was really a, it was a scene that I never thought I would have experienced as a Texan, as an American. Um, You always think that when you ask for help from the police that that they would offer it. They, they would do everything in their power to make sure that you and your your peers are safe. And to to see the opposite happening, to see the lack of action at all, was so incredibly disconcerting. And it's something that no American should ever uh, experience in their lifetimes. Um, Eric, what you've described is actually a stretch of highway that that I know reasonably well. I'm sure many of our listeners do. Uh, the stretch of highway about 80 miles between San Antonio and Austin, with with San Marcos somewhere in between. Uh, th- that's a very heavily policed highway. I've had I've received a speeding ticket at least once on yes. that highway. Yep. Why do you think that there wasn't more of a police presence once you left New Brownfields? You know, I, I, I really have no idea. All I know is once they were told that there was a problem, that this attack was taking place, they didn't respond. Uh, so I don't know what sort of uh, planning did or didn't happen. Uh, there certainly should have been more of an escort, in my opinion. Uh, but w- the reason why we're participating in this lawsuit is because of the lack of response. As soon as we knew that there was danger that there was this attack taking place, uh, as soon as we informed law enforcement officers repeatedly, whether it was dispatchers on the other end of 911 or the the, the two uh, police vehicles at the San Marcos location, uh, there was a failure to act for an unacceptable period of time. Uh, and that's why we're filing this lawsuit. Wendy, if I could bring the same question to you, because you have such experience with, with Texas politics, uh, and I know these issues probably better than almost anyone else. Um, why, why, why do you think there wasn't a response? What, what response should there have been? I think it's easier to understand why the Trump trained people were there. That's no, that's, that's a question that's been analyzed before, but the most disconcerting part to me seems to be the lack of a response, as Eric said, by law enforcement. Yes. And, and, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago in New Braunfels, we had really, um, excellent support from the police there. And I, and others on the bus, we just immediately breathed a sigh of relief when they joined us after we left San Antonio. Um, but then as soon as we crossed into the San Marcos jurisdiction, 
they, of course, peeled away and it became really terrifying, um, truly threatening. And we, I was personally, as well as another one of the Biden staffers, uh, we were both on the line talking to San Marcos Police Dispatch. Uh, we kept telling her every mile marker. We, she was asking us for you know different points of interest that she could uh, convey to a police officer, um, and we just kept telling her, you know, well now we're passing this, and now we're passing this, and I, on at least one occasion, said to her very frustratingly, why, why, <laughs> why is this taking so long? Um, why are they not coming? And because the Trump train had slowed us so much, we were in the San Marcos jurisdiction for at least 30 minutes. There, there's just simply no excuse that we didn't have any police support. And then as soon as we crossed into Kyle, which is the next municipality on the way to Austin, again, we were provided a police escort almost immediately upon passing into that jurisdiction. Um, so the, you know, the flagrant difference between the kind of support that we got, depending on the municipality that we were in, uh, is very disheartening and obviously a, a basis for a portion of this suit. The lawsuit, of course, um, is also making a claim against the very aggressive drivers, very threatening, uh, assaulting drivers in the Trump train but also against the police for the lack of support. And for me personally, I felt like it was really important that we make sure that law enforcement isn't selective about who they protect. That that can't be the America, the society that we live in. Um, and so where we have such a, a flagrant disregard for the safety of people perhaps, um, depending on their political party. I, I think that's really something that we need to address and we need to make sure that we're not letting it go unanswered. So, so Dr. Servini, uh, what was the response that, that your group received from the general public, not just from the media, but from members of the general public at large after the incident? Well, I certainly didn't expect it uh, to be participating, at, at least, in, in such a newsworthy event. It was certainly not my, my hopes uh, volunteering to, to be on the news. I simply wanted <laughs> to help with the election. So when that happened, I, I tweeted about it, and I was, I was quite upset, as you can imagine. Um, and I tweeted some of the video that I had taken uh, and some that I had found that had been posted by one of the members of the, the Trump ambush. And of course, that that went viral. And honestly, one of the most horrific parts of, of the experience was was the response by some of you know those on the other side who realized that um, some of their worst, antics were being exposed uh, because I think it would have been much easier, you know, back in the, the 19th century uh, because folks couldn't document necessarily uh, the Klan's act activity. You didn't have smartphones, but here it was very obvious that something un-American, something violent and something unacceptable was taking place. 
Um, the, the, the backlash I received on social media of thousands upon thousands of threatening messages was a bit scary. And I, I considered, uh, moving my, my mom out, uh, of, of our place in, in Round Rock. And it, it certainly wasn't something I hoped to be experiencing on election day. It should be uh, a celebration of our democracy, not, not a time to be fearing for your life. And just following on on this terrible uh, experience, Eric and, and Wendy, that both of you you had, uh, Wendy, do you see this as systematic? Do you, do you see this in, incident as as part of a larger piece of what's happened in the last few years? And it it certainly um, is an example of other experiences that we've witnessed in the last couple of years. And that, for me personally, was one of the reasons I felt it was so important to file the suit. The the Ku Klux Klan Act um, was created to protect against this very action, to protect people and their precious right to vote, and to make sure that they're free of intimidation and fear of physical violence. Um, Just to help you understand how terrible this was, one of the Biden staffers who was in a vehicle behind the bus following us to the next event for purposes of staffing it, he was actually uh, sideswiped aggressively by another driver, one of the Trump train trucks. Um, And when we finally did make it to our destination in Austin and I saw his vehicle, I I just couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. Um, And he was visibly shaken as he got out of the car um, and was confronted angrily and threateningly by the very person in the pickup truck who had sideswiped him. Um, It was just an overwhelmingly scary experience. And I feel like it's so important that we not let this become our new normal. This cannot be what political speech looks like. It cannot be what political opposition, um, how political opposition presents itself. We owe each other the duty to be civil. And that's what our laws are designed to protect. And in this instance and in other instances, certainly um, surrounding this election, that was not the case. Um, And it's incredibly important not only that we say to private citizens, this is not acceptable. You will be held to account if you engage in behavior like this. But it's equally important that we tell our police departments (laughs) that they must protect us when things like this are happening. You made reference, Wendy, to the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, and, and just for a little background, I know I know you know this, and most of our listeners probably know this as well. That the a Ku Klux Klan Act was passed by Congress because um, state authorities in many states uh, were not uh, enforcing uh, the law protecting, in particular, African Americans uh, who were voting in large numbers uh, during this period of Reconstruction, and the federal government under President Grant's leadership in some cases had to send in uh, military force to protect voters um, uh, throughout the South. The 1872 election following the Ku Klux Klan Act was probably the, elect- the election with the safest and highest participation of African-Americans of any election until the 1960s in the United States. 
Um, so it's an old act, but it's an act that's that's very important. And and as as Wendy said, uh, you know, it really it really matches up well with these conditions, which again are conditions that echo echo that that past. Um, Eric, you've been involved in. Uh, activism around LGBT uh, issues for a long time, and you've obviously confronted hate and prejudice uh, before. Um, does this feel different to you? It feels different because, you know, honestly, even in the '60s and or even the '50s, when you know, we were grappling with with uh, queer persecution, with the gay purges everyone could agree that there still should be no violence in the electoral process. The electoral process was the solution. It was the means by which we affect social change. And so as soon as you no longer can agree on that one ground rule, that it's a peaceful, fair process, then there are no more rules. And that, uh, like Senator Davis said, I think is just unacceptable. This cannot be the new normal. Um, and the only reason that our country has made it this far is by agreeing on that one ground rule. So I think the fact that this one act was condoned by the president, it was accepted as part of the 2020 election. I don't think it's a surprise of what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. Um, and I think that's why this lawsuit is so crucial is to, to hold these folks accountable, because without accountability, there can't be uh, any future in maintaining uh, the democracy that, that we hold so dear. Right. And and Eric, is there, following this line, is there a set of lessons from activism in the past that can help us today? I mean, clearly, as you say, uh, we need national leaders to speak out against this and, and not to encourage it, as as President Trump did, uh, if, if I remember correctly, even tweeting out himself supportive words for the attackers for the Trump train. Um, so clearly that needs to be different. We need different presidential leadership. That That's an obvious point. But what else can we learn from the experience of the past, even if it's been slightly different, for thinking about these issues going forward? And how has that perhaps influenced the approach you've taken with others in your lawsuit? That's a great question. And I think if there's anything my my research has taught me is that social change, especially at the legal level, requires both legal action, which is exactly what, what we're participating in, but also grassroots action, holding uh, politicians, elected officials uh, accountable. And so we're trying to certainly hold law enforcement officers and those who engaged in this violence accountable via this legal process uh, but we also need all the support we can get from outside the courts. Uh, so whether it's calling in, tweeting at your your Congress people, your your uh, your elected officials, and, and making your voice heard that there should be protections uh, for our voting process, that there shouldn't be any of these uh, restrictions that are currently being placed in various states across the country against the voting process. Uh, and so I think it needs to be a two-pronged attack and, and quite frankly, a defense of our rights and of our, our peaceful democracy. And, and, and Wendy, uh, especially in a state like Texas, um, where um, sometimes uh, there's a willingness to accept uh, bullying and where um, 
it appears sometimes that, that there are biases in one direction or another. What, what do you see as some of the things that, that our listeners, that ordinary citizens can do to make a difference? Well, obviously, um, and I guess it's a bit circular to say this, participating in an election so that we can protect elections, right? Um, exercising our power at the ballot box to express our strongly held positions about the justice and fairness that every person in America deserves. Um, And that can only really be demanded and enforced through elections where we're putting people in place who are going to protect our rights. Um, And also, you know, making sure that we're spreading the word when things like this are happening and that if we are um, subject to any kind of harassment or intimidation ourselves, we'll feel emboldened to come forward and report it. Um, One of my concerns, of course, is that when people behave like this, it tends to drive a a silence of support for opposing positions. Um, Just the fear of, you know, what it might mean to have a a bumper sticker of a Democrat on your car uh, in certain areas of Texas, for example. And I remember thinking about that after this incident in a way that I've never had to think about before. But I proudly had my Biden-Harris sticker on my car and traveling through the congressional district that I was running in, which includes um, San Marcos and New Braunfels and a large uh, rural swath of central Texas, I just remember feeling that that fear for the first time that I might be identifying myself in a way that would welcome harassment. Um, and so the way I answered uh, that fear for myself was to just to face it, right? To um, proudly stand for what I stand for, for whom I support, um, and to rely on our power through the judicial system and the legislative system to make sure that we hold these kinds of acts and actors responsible. And I would just encourage everyone um, to do the same, to not allow the fear, the intimidation, and the tactics of violence that some of the folks on uh, the other side have displayed to cow us. Um, And I certainly take as my inspiration people like Eric um, and historically uh, the folks who have fought so hard to make sure that we have equal rights in this country whether we're talking about people in the LGBTQ community um, or whether we're talking about Black Americans who for so long fought for and have held so dearly their right to make sure that they can participate in the electoral process. It's such an important point that you and Eric make about the importance of participation. It, It does seem circular, as you said at first, but it's Actually, I think such a powerful answer, which is that um, the response to bullying has to be more participation, not less. 
Uh, we don't have to bully in return. There doesn't have to be, we, we don't want to see counter militias to militias that are out there, but we do, we do need people to speak up and, and call upon the, the use of the law and our institutions to protect voters. And that would apply to bullying of any kind, intimidation of any kind. Um, Zachary, for, as a young person listening who cares deeply, and, and, and I know you and many of your colleagues were, were really astonished, startled, dismayed by what happened on October 30th and some of the other evidence that we've seen around the country in the last year of uh, voter intimidation. Uh, does this discussion help? Does it does it offer a way forward? Are you are you inspired by it, or, or or is it actually a source of continued concern for you? Well, that's a good question. I, I think that in, in many ways it's easy to look at this incident uh, and 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 see it as an example of how dire uh, our the state of our political discourse is in this country. But I think there's also something deeper, and that is that 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 the people who are trying to resist. Uh, the broadening of our electorate and the broadening of democratic participation um, are feeling really threatened right now. And I think that this incident goes to show that that our, many of our efforts are actually successful and that the reason political discourse in this country has become so 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 fervent lately has been that 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 there is change on the way. And so I think it it can be a hopeful moment. Uh, Eric, are you hopeful? I am. I am. And I think, you know, you, you look at despite what happened uh, on October 30th, um, we won with Biden and, and Vice President Harris uh, are now in the White House by seven million votes. Uh, and so I think it sent a message uh, to everyone in our country that you can try to rely on these tactics. But at the end of the day, uh, we have a majority of folks in this country who will always fight for, for civil liberties and justice for everyone. And I think once we return to the equal playing field that uh, once was part of our rhetoric, but never quite there uh, historically uh, on a de facto level, I think we need to be striving to make the voting process open to everyone. And I, I totally agree uh, that there is a fear of that process, but that just means we're doing something right. Wendy, what about you? Are you, are you hopeful as well? I'm an eternal optimist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have been my whole life. And despite being knocked down a few times uh, myself in political battles, I believe so strongly in the institutions upon which this country was founded um, yesterday, uh, celebrating the independence of our nation and the promise that all are to be created equal and have the equal right to live a, a happy life. I believe so strongly that our foundations will assure that if we continue to fight to make sure that they do. And that, of course, always leads back to electing the right people who will fight for those principles and assure that every single one of us can grow up in a secure, safe, and prosperous America. I think that's a perfect note to close on. And, and I am inspired, uh, Eric and Wendy, by the optimism that, that you bring to this. And, and I think you've um, articulated both of you so eloquently. 
uh, one of the central themes of American history, which is that I think the the efforts to intimidate voters and to uh, distort elections are old and they're, they're ubiquitous in our history. Uh, but what's equally ubiquitous uh, are the courageous efforts of citizens to shed light on that and and inform other citizens and mobilize people to fight back uh, and to fight back by going out to vote and participating. Uh, when voter intimidation has worked in our history, it's been because it happens and good citizens don't do anything about it. Uh, when voter intimidation has failed, uh, as to some extent it did in the last election, uh, it's because people stand up against it. And, and uh, hats off to to both of you, Eric and Wendy, for for standing up and for not only being a model in your in your actions in, in October and throughout the election, but also now speaking out about it and educating uh, all of us. I know our listeners uh, are better informed. Uh, thanks, thanks to both of you. So, so thank you for joining us. Uh, Wendy Davis and Eric Servini. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks so much. And Zachary, thank you, of course, for your uh, wonderful poem and your insights as well. And thank you most of all to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.